This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. I don't know who it's falling for. Maybe the short sellers are pretty happy today. Shares of Oracle down more than 8.5% after yesterday's earnings report. Here to help us understand what's going on. Anurag Rana, Bloomberg Intelligence, a senior software analyst. He knows all things about software and IT services. You can follow Anurag on Twitter at Anurag underscore Rana 4. Okay, Anurag underscore Rana 4. What happened at Oracle? We were talking about this after the close of trading yesterday yesterday and uh, it seems as though the sell-off just accelerated today yeah I mean uh, after uh, you know we talked about it and we went on the call and then on the call the sales guidance for next quarter um, you know was slightly below what the uh, what the street was expecting now in a normal circumstances that wouldn't have been that big of a deal you know plus minus a couple of percent points but you know we have seen some very strong results from software companies over the last um, month or so. So the question is, you know, why aren't these guys doing so well? You know, the issue is, you know, a couple of things. One is on the application sides, which is slowly moving into subscriptions. When you see that, you know, the revenue gets pushed out. So depending on how many uh, clients move from license to subscription, there is volatility there. Because if you do the license model, the revenue gets booked up front. You yes. don't spread it out over the life of I pay X amount every month for the course of the contract. Fair enough. So, okay. so year one, you actually see a massive reduction in revenue from the same client. So in order for Oracle to grow on that, you have to book a lot more business. That has been the case for anybody who's gone through these transitions, whether it's been you know, Adobe or Autodesk and Oracle and SAP. Um, so that's one issue. And the second issue is on the database side of it where um, it's their IT business, they have a new product that came out in January and that should pick up as the year goes by. You know, unlike a traditional software company which is on the application side, database work takes time for people to upgrade. It's not as, you know, as soon as it comes out, people go and upgrade it. So there is a longer tail to that. So, you know, in our view, if you look at down a few quarters, some of this should return back to normalcy. But the issue at this point is that the, the next quarter guidance is not very strong. Okay, let, let's just break off the, these two different areas because you're talking about databases. We'll get to that in a second. How does the Salesforce, and I don't mean Salesforce.com, although they are a big competitor, and of course Mark Benioff at Salesforce and Larry Ellison, there is a, a lot of history between those two individuals. Uh, how does the actual Salesforce sell a license subscription versus a software-as-a-service subscription? So a lot, I mean, they, over the last few, you know, I would say a couple of years, they've changed the incentives for the Salesforce to sell more subscriptions rather than the license. But more than that, the industry is moving that way. So a client would understand that, listen, 
I don't want an on-premise software, which is- so No, 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 I know that. But I mean, in terms of if you have an embedded sales force, in other words, a group of people whose job it is to go out and sell licenses, and everybody in the world is looking at software as a service, as a potential option, they're not going to necessarily buy those licenses. That's what I'm saying. The Salesforce at Oracle has been incentivized more to sell subscriptions than licenses. Also, when they go talk to a client, the client is not keen on buying the license. They want the subscriptions. So their compensation is based more on how much cloud products that they sell, which are sold as subscriptions, rather than the on-premise products, which are sold as licenses. Do this, does the, does the uh, uh, remuneration, does the money that a salesperson makes by selling a subscription, does that also get spread out over the course of future months as opposed to being booked when that initial sale or contract is signed? I think it depends with company. It okay. depends on what you're incentivizing. And you might load some of that upfront, which means your margins could be squeezed along with the revenue, but you're pushing them to have a product that has a longer life cycle and is far more profit profitable over a three to five year period. Okay, let's talk database for just a second. You said that it takes time for a company to migrate when you're offering a new database application. Why? Just because what happens is your normal applications that you have built, there's a lot of connectors that's been built with the databases. So when you have to go and upgrade it, you have to basically redo that engineering again. You need to bring in IT services people, you need to bring in the consultants. It's not as easy as just giving you a username and login to move from one software to the other, which is what would happen in a cloud-based world. And that move, that, that transition, if you're running that large database, sometimes can be quite proprietary in terms of the kind of data or the kind of database because there are some specialized databases for specialized industries. Yeah, but Oracle will help you do that when, right. it, when it launches a new product. It'll, you know, it will give you the services which you can help you upgrade to the newer version of the software. And also in this particular case, their newer version allows the, allows customers to self-provision or self-patch the software um, which is very important right now because of security problems, patching is becoming a very big issue for um, you know the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Right. They don't necessarily want to spend the time and the money being responsible for doing it. They'd rather offload that to the software company like an Oracle. Yes, absolutely. And that's something that we think as the year goes by, we would see an acceleration in both the, the database license and subscription piece of it, as well as subscriptions for the applications. Thank you very much for being here. Always a pleasure. Anurag Rana, Senior Software and IT Services Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Follow him on Twitter at Anurag underscore Rana4. Shares of Oracle may continue to fall. They are down a little bit more than 8.5%. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox in for Carol Masser. Baby, break down. Go ahead, give it to me. A breakdown in the shares of Facebook today. They are lower right now by more than 4%. When did Facebook executives know that the information that was uh, available by, uh, that was made available uh, by uh, their technology available to Cambridge Analytica? And when did they know it? What did they do about it? That is just some of the questions that Facebook employees are asking their own Vice President Paul Grewal. He's answering questions today about 
Cambridge Analytica from employees of the company at the company's headquarters via video. Here to help us understand this issue and what the likely effects may be is Adam Levin. He is the chairman of Cyber Scout and our own Sarah Fryer. Always a pleasure, Sarah Fryer, our Bloomberg News technology reporter. Uh, Sarah, I'm just wondering if you could just give us an update. Uh, as I mentioned, this report that the Facebook employees want to know what the company knew and when they knew it. Do we have any idea as to the answer? <laughs> yes. I mean, the company is is uh, trying to make sure that employees are briefed on the situation just like um, you know, they're they're going to be doing briefings with lawmakers today and tomorrow for various congressional committees. Um, but employees are really what matters to Facebook the most. If employees are not satisfied with how Facebook's handling things, they they might leak to reporters, which would make their situation even worse. So it's better to have this internal transparency. And actually, that's something that Facebook has always been pretty good at. Well, the idea that you would end up having leaks that would be available via some social media site, even Facebook or Twitter come to mind, uh, is rather ironic. And Adam Levin, I want you to come in on this as the chairman of uh, CyberScout. You're also the former director of the New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs, uh, CyberScout uh, based in uh, Scottsdale, uh, Arizona. Uh, what do you make of this? And is there a, a playbook for how Facebook can handle uh, this current scandal? Well, the reality is this is not the first time that they've had an issue about how data was being used, where it was being displayed, who was using it, what they were using it for. And, you know, this is something that has that has plagued the company over the years. Plus, you know, they, they have a, 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 a stated policy that Mark Zuckerberg announced years ago that privacy is dead. And this is just, again, pushing the boundaries of how dead privacy really is. Because in this situation, it's not just a question of somebody volunteering to be part of a study that then went awry. It's that anyone who knew them or anyone that was available for viewing on their site, having done anything in connection with them or being in the same place with them, suddenly got sucked into this situation and now everybody's on display. So it's like you didn't volunteer to get in the army, you've been drafted into the army. But we're living in a surveillance society that everything we do, unfortunately, is being tracked and recorded and everything from Alexa to Internet of Things devices. And more and more people are going to have to start becoming really more aware of this. And companies are going to have to get more sensitive to what could be reactions. But with Facebook, it's not like two billion people are going to flee the site. Right. Adam Levin, chairman, founder, a cyber scout, and uh, Sarah Fire, our technology reporter uh, in San Francisco. Do you suddenly realize that this could be the start of something big? You're lunching at 20. Well, it could be the start of, well, it is the start of Jerome Powell's tenure at the Federal Reserve. He will be uh, speaking to reporters tomorrow following the conclusion of the two-day FOMC meeting. Here to help us understand that event and much more when it comes to fixed income, bonds, debts, Kathy Jones, Senior Vice President, Chief Fixed Income Strategist, Schwab Center for Financial Research. And uh, they can all be followed on Twitter at Schwab for Traders. Kathy, thank you very much for being here in the 
the studio. So what uh, what are you looking for from tomorrow's uh, meeting conclusion and from Jerome Powell, the new Federal Reserve Chairman? Well, I think we're looking for pretty much what the consensus calls for, you know, a rate hike, obviously. Um, we'll be interested in the dots plot and whether they're signaling three or four rate hikes this year. I think there's a good chance that we get pretty close to four instead of the three from the previous meeting. Um, and then we'll just be looking at the assessment of the economy, uh, their, the tone of the comments in describing the pro uh, progress on inflation and on the labor market to get a hint of how aggressive they want to be or not. Well, all right, so tell me about the state of the U.S. economy right now, because uh, we seem to have a situation in which uh, many things are considered benign, right? You have uh, relatively low unemployment, 4.1%. Uh, you have an economy that, by most measures, what are we, GDP year over year, 2.5% uh, growth. And historically, although interest rates have increased recently, historically low levels of, of interest rates. Yet there seems to be, uh, you can always go and find something negative if you want. Well, there's a lot of anxiety, uh, I, I think, around will consumers uh, continue to spend at the healthy pace that they did last year? Um, it, actually, the first quarter looks like we've had a bit of a slowdown, but we often have a bit of a slowdown in the first quarter. People tend to spend a lot in the fourth quarter, slow down in the first quarter. It's not always captured in the data. But um, there's also concern about our expanding deficits, what's happening on trade. All these things can contribute to this sense of uncertainty about the future. So does that change or does that uh, uncertainty uh, offer any guidance as to what you're recommending investors do, at least with the fixed income portion of their portfolios? We really haven't changed our guidance. So we've been saying for well over a year that investors in fixed income might want to consider shortening the duration of their portfolios to make it less sensitive to interest rate increases, look at securities in the fixed income world that actually benefit from rate hikes, maybe investment-grade floating rate notes, maybe Treasury inflation-protected securities because we're starting to see a little bit higher inflation. We think that will continue over the next six months. And then think about moving up in credit quality a bit. We've had, um, up until very recently, historically low uh, value uh, difference between treasury yields and corporate bond yields. And so we thought, well, maybe you want to be in the little higher up in the credit structure just to make sure that if we get a bump in the road, uh, you're not caught in a sell-off. Do you believe that investors are too greedy when it comes to what they want out of their fixed income portfolio? Well, I think everyone aspires to um, getting something for nothing, right? You know, I think one of the most frequently asked questions I've had over the last six or seven years is, why can't I just find, you know, a muni bond, high credit quality that gives me four or five percent? And my answer is always, well, it just doesn't exist, right? <laughs> if the risk-free rate is close Also, to everybody else would want that same thing, and as a result, that competition would probably right. drive down right. the price. And you have to think, where's the risk-free rate? And if you're getting a lot more than the risk-free rate, there's some risk involved. And that's the way you have to think about it. But the good news is, I'm optimistic that as rates go up, um, the retail investor, the everyday investor, is actually going to benefit because they're going to be able to get better yields without having to reach into you know lower credit quality, high yield bonds or emerging markets or all the places people have been looking for yield. Do you think people will rediscover certificates of deposit? 
They have. We have uh, seen a huge amount of interest over the past year because CDs are now offering a place to put your money if you don't need it for a year or two. You have that kind of short-term cash. And they're insured. And they're insured. And the yields are, are not too bad compared to where we were a couple of years ago. Give you 20 seconds. Get your thoughts on muni bonds right now. In general, we like munis. We think that the credit quality outside of a few hot spots is very good. And uh, the yields are, the valuations are fair here. So I think for a core part of a portfolio, they make sense. Thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us. Uh, Kathy Jones, Senior Vice President, Chief Fixed Income Strategist for the Schwab Center for Financial Research. And you can follow uh, the uh, Schwab Center at Schwab for Traders, at Schwab for Traders uh, on Twitter. And just taking a look at the bond market right now, the long end, the 30-year continues its sell-off down 15, 30 seconds for a yield of 3.11%. And we will, of course, have complete coverage of tomorrow's FO. OMC meeting, conclusion, and press conference. Now the trucks don't work, they just make you worse, but I know I'll see your face again. Well, the drugs might not work, but the medical devices, they seem to be working at least for investors. Here to tell us more, Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Commons. Send Dave an email at dwilson at bloomberg.net. And Dave, I was just looking, for example, at Stryker, one of the major medical device makers, uh, shares up a half a percent today, but uh, a gain of more than 5% over the last month. Right. Well, that's just one example of a relatively short time frame of uh, why it is that the medical device makers have done relatively well. And this is a comparison that Ari Wald, who's the uh, chief technical analyst over at Oppenheimer, uh, was making in his latest report, basically looking at each of these groups relative to the S&P 500 and using uh, exchange-traded funds uh, as a way into uh, their relative performance. Uh, you look at iShares uh, ETFs, you see that there's one for the drug makers, and the ticker there is IHE, and the uh, medical device ticker uh, for iShares ETFs is IHI. So what's happened is that if you compare them directly, you see it's been quite a contrast in performance going back almost three years now. Uh, the ratio between... The medical device ETF and the pharmaceutical ETF up 87% from a low in July 2015 through yesterday. So it gives you some sense that, you know, let's face it, you can't exactly say healthcare stocks are all alike because clearly uh, the, the device area of the market has done relatively well, judging by this comparison, at a time when you know the drug makers, you know, among other things, dealing with the kind of opioid issues that are now front and center, and a whole lot of other uh, concerns. Well, they're not doing so well. So, if you want to know more about this, you know, and you haven't seen the chart already, just send me an email. I'll get it to you along with the explanation that goes with it and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Dave, uh, just a little bit more on medical devices because I, was I used to follow uh, St. Jude uh, and, of course, the acquisition uh, of St. Jude by uh, Abbott Labs. Uh, if you take a look at the stock of, of Abbott Labs, uh, it is a pretty consistent move 
higher. And at one point, there was a lot of consternation about whether there would be big changes in the way that medical devices were taxed. And indeed, as part of the overhaul of the Affordable Care Act, there was an addition of the uh, medical device tax. Now, uh, uh, the sort of ramifications of that, perhaps overdone in the form of some investors' idea, uh, minds, but when you see the, uh, the performance, let's say just of Abbott Labs as my example, Stock is up nearly 10% so far this year. Well, it's a good example because if you look into the e-medical devices ETF, you see that Abbott is 8.4% uh, of its value, more than any other stock. Then you go from there and look at Medtronic and Thermo Fisher Scientific, and together uh, those three are close to a quarter of the ETF's value. So it is a, a very much focused index in that regard. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, you're seeing relatively broad gains because after all, you wouldn't get this disparity in performance without them. Yeah, and a lot of this has to do with the reimbursement schedules, right? In other words, right. if you have a product uh, that is reimbursable under certain types of insurance, whether that's in the United States or in Japan or the European Union, that uh, can really change uh, the way in which uh, you value a particular stock. And, and just to mention another company, Siemens, you know, they've got this health and ears, uh division and uh, they are I believe looking to you know spin that off as a, as a completely separate unit in an IPO well I mean one other thing just sort of in the backdrop you've never heard President Donald Trump come out and talk about prices of medical devices the way that he has prices of drugs you know and that was a, a bit of the conversation yesterday with the whole issue of opioids so you know, you have to put it all together. And this is an industry that is, you know, when you look at the uh, the pharmaceutical industry, that's to some extent is kind of back on its heels, at least. Uh, you haven't seen the same issues arise, at least not to the same extent, with the uh, device makers. And uh, that may well explain, at least in part, why their shares are doing so well. Indeed. Uh, yeah, because uh, health diagnostics, a big business there. And, of course, we know that uh, GE, Philips, as well as Roche Holdings uh, and Philips uh, as part of that group. And I just thought it was interesting that Siemens is looking to sort of split off that health and ear group into an initial public offering. And um, that would also uh, take a bit of the debt load off of uh, Siemens. So sure. another way to sort of look at the, uh, the effort to financially engineer the independence of the company. And when you mention Philips, I mean, one thing that's interesting is you, you think of them perhaps as light bulbs or consumer electronics. They've really made a push into healthcare the last few years, and that's the focus of their business, this whole medical device area. So, you know, it, it does kind of show you that, that people have seen value in being in this particular industry. And it's clear that investors see the value of owning the shares of the companies, whether we're talking about uh, you know, some of the European ones that we're, we're mentioning well, like here, Phillips, or indeed. the U.S. Uh, companies that are the focus of this uh, particular ETF. It's the U.S. medical devices ETF. Same thing with U.S. Do they Go ahead. Give, give the symbols again, just so people okay. are IHI is the medical devices ETF and IHE for the pharmaceuticals ETF, both iShares. All right. And you got your Bloomberg chart of the day, right? Indeed. Go ahead. D. Wilson at Bloomberg.net. That's D. Wilson at Bloomberg.net. You can send even, me an email. And you can comment on his musical selections as well. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? 
Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, and helping us drive to the close is Randy Watts. He is executive vice president and chief investment strategist for William O'Neill and Company. He joins us in our 1130 studios. Randy, thanks so much for for coming in. Before we get into some specific uh, stocks and and uh, and ideas, and get your thoughts right now on um, what are the investment themes that you believe have value. I think the most important thing to remember right now is that the U.S. continues in a very strong profit cycle. Uh, Q4 earnings and revenues were better than expected pretty much across the board and, in fact, accelerated from Q3. When you look at the estimates for Q1 for the S&P, we're looking at another acceleration. Estimates are supposed to be up in the teens. When you think about the full year, the market's currently forecasted to do about $158 in earnings for 2018 which is about uh, uh, almost a 20% increase in earnings. And for next year, about $174, which would be a 9 to 10% increase. Uh, so I think the thing that investors need to remember during this current volatility is that there, it is a very strong corporate profit cycle. Profits are getting better, not worse. And it's probably a mistake to get too negative uh, while corporate profits are still increasing at this rate. Okay, I'm going to be a little negative here because I want to know, is the breadth of leadership that would be expressed by those profits, has that breadth in leadership, has it been uh, demonstrated in stock performance? So, so that's a, that's a great, a great question and, and very topical. Uh, one thing that is a little concerning about the market is the fact that on a, uh, a market cap-weighted basis, there's only two groups right now in the market trading above their 50-day moving average. That's technology and utilities. I would note, however, that utilities are currently below their 200-day. So the only sector in the market that's currently above both its 50-day and its 200-day price daily moving average is technology. If you looked at the market on an equal-weighted basis, there'd be four groups where the average stock was above its 50-day. Those in order would be technology, transports, healthcare, and utilities. But I would note that uh, the numbers are not outstanding in that sense. Technology's got about 65% of its stocks above the 50-day. Uh, utilities, which is the, the lowest of that four I just mentioned, is about 52%. So I think one thing that does concern us is the fact that it's been a very narrow market so far this year. If you look at the major averages, the Dow is basically flat this year. The S&P is up about 2%. And the Nasdaq's up a little bit under seven percent. We'd really like to see more breadth in terms of sector and individual stock participation uh, for the for the market to continue higher from here. We're hopeful we're going to get that with first quarter earnings, which again we think are going to be very strong. I would uh, remind your listeners that this will be the first quarter with the with the new uh, tax rates in effect. And uh, we do think this is going to be a very strong, a strong quarter for profits. Okay, strong quarter for profits, and I know this is going to sound strange. Strong quarter for avocado demand. See how I did that? Because I know you want to talk about one particular stock, uh, Calavo Growers. Right? This is a, a base in Santa Paula, California. Correct. I know the area. Um, 
perishable foods, but mainly avocados. It, it is. You know, avocados have been very popular. One of the themes we have uh, inside O'Neill really is this healthy living uh, concept. Uh, avocado consumption has been going up pretty substantially in the United States. They're one of the leading uh, producers of it, and we think this is a, a, a trend that's going to continue. You know, another story we like in that space is a company called Planet Fitness. This is a, a mid-cap stock. They've got about 1,500 gyms in the United States. They have about 10.5 million members. Uh, what's interesting about this company is they really cater to the, to the newer gym goer. About 43% of their members uh, ha had not joined a gym before joining Planet Fitness, and they charge them about $10 a month. We think that's a, that's a very interesting stock. It's got about $3.7 billion cap. Uh, the stock currently uh, trades around $38. We think they can do about $1.45 next year. If they could hold a 30 multiple, that would give you a 43 to $44 stock, which would be a nice move from here. Well, th that begs the question then, how much, do you, how much are you willing to pay for these kinds of things? Because you know everything can be a great stock or a great investment. It just depends on how expensive it is. And so Planet Fitness are at $430 million in revenue a year and $53 million in net. You like paying whatever it is, uh, as you said, 38 I guess it is, $38 a share. Uh, yeah, 38 50 a share um, for a company like that? Well, I'll tell you, one of the things we really like about it is it's a big industry. It's a $25 billion industry in the U.S. They're only doing $430 million in sales, as you mentioned, so there's lots of room to grow. So when we pay that kind of a multiple for a growth stock, we want to see that there's a multi-year trajectory ahead of it. Another thing we like is 95% of the membership fees are collected electronically, so we like that stability of the business. And we also like the fact it's a franchise model. Out of the 1,500 fitness clubs, about 95% are franchised. The, the company owns, com in terms of company outright, about 5% of them. And we do think, as we, we said a minute ago with the avocados, we think healthier living is a, is a trend inside the U U.S. and very much on consumer. All right, so eat your avocados and go to the gym. Calivo Growers, as well as Planet Fitness. My thanks to Randy Watts. He is Executive Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist for William O'Neill and Company. Thanks very much for helping us drive to the close. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.